committee will come back to order after the recess. The chair now recognizes the ranking member for his first round of questions. Pursuant to House Resolution 660, the ranking member or his counsel have 45 minutes to question the witnesses. The ranking member. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Before I begin uh, on the question, I do want to revisit a comment that was made earlier uh, by you, Mr. Chairman. It was our demand for a minority hearing day. And you stated you would rule on it later. I just wanted to remind you, the rules of the House do not permit a ruling on this. They do not permit a vote, and you cannot shut it down. And according to your own words, the minority is entitled to day of hearings. It's a right rarely exercised, but it's guards against the majority abusing its power to exclude competing views. Call it the fair and balanced rule. It's not the chairman's right to determine whether we deserve a hearing. It's not the chairman's right to decide whether we prior hearings were sufficient. It's not the chairman's right to decide whether or what we say or think is acceptable. It is certainly never the chairman's right to violate the rules in order to interfere with our right to conduct a hearing. And I just uh, commend Mr. Sensenbrenner for bringing that forward and look forward to that scheduled, uh, that you getting that scheduled expeditiously. Moving on. Interesting part, now we hit phase two. <coughs> You've had one side, and I have to say it was eloquently argued by not only the council and by the witnesses involved, but there is always a phase two. A phase two is what is problematic here. Because as I said in my opening statement, this is one that would be, and for many, one of the most disputed impeachments on just the facts themselves. What was interesting is we actually showed uh, videos of, of witnesses. In fact, one of them was an opening statement again, I believe, which again, the closest thing to perfect outside your resume, this side of heaven, is an opening statement because it's unchallenged, and I agree with that, and it should be, and we've had great witnesses here today to talk about this, but we didn't talk about anything about Kurt Volker, who uh, said nothing about it. We said nothing about the aid being held up. Morrison, who contradicted uh, Benman and others, we've not done that, and I don't expect the majority to, because that's not what they're here for. They're not here to give exculpatory evidence, just like the uh, Schiff report gives nothing of exculpatory evidence, and also there's still evidence being withheld by Adam Schiff that has not come to this committee, and we've still not got any of the underlying stuff that came from that investigation that, uh, according to House uh, H660, we believe we're supposed to get. One being the very important part is the Inspector General, the IC Inspector General, his testimony is still being held. And there's a, quote, secret on it, or they're holding it in classification. Last time I checked, we have plenty of places in this building and other buildings to handle classified information if they still want to do that. But it's being withheld from us. I have to believe now there is a reason it's being withheld because undoubtedly there's a problem with it. And we'll just have to see as that goes forward. So anybody in the media, anybody watching today, the first, you know, 45 minutes is, is and we went through, um, have painted a very interesting picture. It's painted an interesting picture that goes back uh, many, many years. It paints an interesting picture of picking and choosing which part of the last few weeks we want to talk about. And that's fine because we'll have the rest of the day to go about this. But Professor Turley, you're now well rested. <laughs> um, and you got one question you were asked a yes, no on and not given to elaborate, but I'm gonna start here. Let's just do this. Um, elaborate if you would, because you tried to on the question that was asked to you. And then if there's anything else that you've heard this morning that you would disagree with um, or have an interest on, I will go ahead and allow you some time to talk. By the way, just for the information, Mr. Chairman, this is the coldest hearing room <laughs> in the world. And also, for those of you who are worried about I'm uncomfortable, upset, I'm happy as a lark, but this chair is terrible. I mean, it is amazing. But, Mr. Turley, go ahead. <laughs> well, it, it's a challenge to think of anything I was not able to cover in my robust exchange with Majority Council. I, but I'd like to try. Um, <laughs> go right ahead. 
I, there's a couple of things I just wanted to highlight. I'm not going to take a great deal of time. I, I respect my colleagues. I know all of them, uh, and I consider, consider them friends. And I certainly respect what they have said today. We have fundamental disagreements. And I'd like to start with the issue of bribery. Uh, the statement has been made, not just by these witnesses, but Chairman Schiff and others, that this is a clear case of bribery. It's not. And Chairman Schiff said that it might not fit today's definition of bribery, but it would fit the definition back in the 18th century. Now, putting aside Mr. Schiff's turn towards originalism, I, I think that it might come as a relief to him and his supporters that his career will be a short one, uh, that there is not an originalist uh, future in that argument. Uh, the bribery theory being put forward uh, is as flawed in the 18th century as it is in this century. Um, the statement that was made by one of my esteemed colleagues is that bribery really wasn't defined until much later. There was no bribery statute, and that is certainly true. But it obviously had a meaning. That's why they put it in this important standard. Uh, bribery was not this overarching concept that Chairman Schiff indicated. Qu quite to the contrary, the original standard was treason and bribery. That led uh, Mason to object that it was too narrow. If bribery could include any type of time you did anything for personal interest uh, instead of public interest, if you have this overarching definition, that exchange would have been completely useless. The framers didn't disagree with Mason's view that bribery was too narrow. What they disagreed with was when he suggested maladministration to add to the standard, because he wanted it to be broader. And what James Madison said is that that's too broad that that would essentially create what you might call a vote of no confidence in England. It would basically allow Congress to toss out a president that they did not like. But once again, we're all channeling the intent of the framers, uh, and that's always a dangerous uh, thing to do. Um, the, only more, the only more dangerous spot to stand in is between Congress and an impeachment as an academic. Uh, but I would offer instead the words of the framers themselves. You see, in that exchange, they didn't just say bribery was too narrow. They actually gave an example of bribery. And it was nothing like what was described. When the uh, objection was made uh, by uh, Mason, uh, sorry, sorry, by Madison, ultimately the framers agreed. And then Morris, who was referred to earlier, did say we need to adopt the standard. But what was left out was what came afterwards. What Morris said is that, that we need to protect against bribery because we don't want anything like what happened with Louis XIV and Charles II. That is, the example he gave of bribery was accepting actual money as the head of state. So what had happened in that example that Morris gave as his example of bribery was that Louis XIV, who was a bit of a recidivist when it came to bribes, uh, gave Charles II a huge amount of money, as well as other benefits, including apparently a, a French mistress, in exchange for uh, the secret treaty of Dover of 1670. 
Uh, it also was an exchange for his converting to Catholicism. But that wasn't some broad notion of bribery. It was actually quite narrow. So I don't think that dog will hunt in the 18th century, and I don't think it'll hunt today. Because if you take a look at the 21st century, bribery is well-defined. And you shouldn't just take our word for it. You should look to how it's defined by the United States Supreme Court. In a case called McDonald versus the United States, the Supreme Court looked at a public corruption bribery case. This was a case where gifts were actually received. Benefits were actually extended. There was completion. This was not some hypothetical of, of a, a crime that was not fulfilled or an action that was not actually taken. The Supreme Court unanimously overturned that conviction, unanimously. And what they said was that you cannot take the bribery crime um, and use what they called a boundless interpretation. All the justices said that it's a dangerous thing to take a crime like bribery and apply a boundless interpretation. They rejected the notion, for example, that bribery could be used in terms of setting up meetings and other types of things that occur in the course of uh, a public service career. Uh, so what I would caution the committee is that these crimes have meaning. It gives me no joy to disagree with my colleagues here. And I really don't have a dog in this fight. But you can't accuse a president of bribery. And then when some of us note that the Supreme Court has rejected your type of boundless interpretation, say, well, it's just impeachment. We really don't have to prove the elements. That's a favorite mantra, that is sort of close enough for jazz. Well, this isn't improv improvisational jazz. Close enough is not good enough. If you're going to accuse a president of bribery, you need to make it stick because you're trying to remove a duly elected president of the United States. Now, it's unfair to accuse someone of a crime and when others say, well, those interpretations you're using to define the crime are not valid and to say they don't have to be valid because this is impeachment. That has not been the standard historically. If you, my testimony lays out the criminal allegations in the previous impeachments. Those were not just proven crimes, they were accepted crimes. That is, even the Democrats on that, that the Judiciary Committee agreed that Bill Clinton had committed perjury. That's on the record, and, there, and a federal judge later said it was perjury. In the case of Nixon, the crimes were established. No one seriously disagreed with those crimes. Now, Johnson's the outlier because Johnson was a trapdoor crime. They basically created a crime knowing that Johnson wanted to replace Secretary of War Stanton. And Johnson did because they had serious trouble in the cabinet. So they created a trapdoor crime, waited for him to fire the Secretary of War, and then they impeached him. But there's no question he committed the crime, it's just the underlying statute was unconstitutional. So I would caution you not only about bribery, but also obstruction. I'm sorry, Ranking Member, you? No, you're doing a good job. Go ahead. Okay. I'd also caution you about obstruction. 
Obstruction is a crime also with meaning. It has elements. It has controlling case authority. The record does not establish obstruction in this case. That is, what my esteemed colleague said was certainly true. If you accept all of their presumptions, it would be obstruction. But impeachments have to be based on proof, not presumptions. That's the problem when you move towards impeachment on this abbreviated schedule that has not been explained to me. Why you want to set the record for the fastest impeachment. Fast is not good for impeachment. Narrow, fast impeachments have failed. Just ask Johnson. So the obstruction issue is an example of this problem. And here's my concern. The theory being put forward is that President Trump obstructed Congress by not turning over material requested by the committee. And citations have been made to the third article of the Nixon impeachment. Now, first of all, I want to confess, I've been a critic of the third article of the Nixon impeachment my whole life. My hair catches on fire every time someone mentions the third article. Why? Because you would be replicating one of the worst articles written on impeachment. Here's the reason why. Peter Redino's position as chairman of judiciary was that Congress alone decides what information may be given to it. Alone. His position was that the courts have no role in this. And so, if any, by that theory, any refusal by a president based on executive privilege or immunities would be the basis of impeachment. That is essentially the theory that's being replicated today. President Trump has gone to, Congress, to, to the courts. He's allowed to do that. We have three branches, not two. I happen to agree with some of your criticism about President Trump, including that earlier quote where my colleagues talked about his saying that I, there's this article too, and he gives this overriding interpretation. I share that criticism. You're doing the same thing with Article 1. You're saying Article 1 gives us complete authority that when we demand information from another branch, it must be turned over or we'll impeach you in record time. Now, making that worse is that you have such a short investigation. It's a perfect storm. You set an incredibly short period, demand a huge amount of information, and when the president goes to court, you then impeach him. Now, does that track with what you've heard about impeachment? Does that track with the rule of law that we talked about? So on obstruction, I would encourage you to think about this. In Nixon, it did go to the courts. And Nixon lost. And that was the reason Nixon resigned. He resigned a few days after the Supreme Court ruled against him in that critical case. But in that case, the court recognized there are executive privilege arguments that can be made. It didn't say, you had no right coming to us, don't darken our doorstep again. It said, we've heard your arguments, we've heard Congress's arguments, and you know what? You lose. Turn over the material to Congress. Do you know that, what that did for the judiciary is it gave this body legitimacy it wasn't the Rodino extreme position that only you decide what information can be produced. 
Now, recently, there are some rulings against President Trump, including a ruling involving Don McGahn. Mr. Chairman, I testified in front of you a few months ago. And if you recall, we had an exchange, and I encouraged you to bring those actions. And I said I thought you would win, and you did. And I think it's an, it was an important win for this committee, because I don't agree with President Trump's argument in that case. But that's an example of what can happen if you actually subpoena witnesses and go to court. Then you have an obstruction case, because a court issues an order. And unless they stay that order by a higher court, you have obstruction. But I can't emphasize this enough, and I'll say it just one more time. If you impeach a president, if you make a high crime and misdemeanor out of going to the courts, it is an abuse of power. It's your abuse of power. You are doing precisely what you're criticizing the president for doing. We have a third branch that deals with conflicts of the other two branches. And what comes out of there and what you do with it is the very definition of legitimacy. Let's continue on. Let's unpack what you've been talking about. First of all, the McDonald case, how was that decided? Was that a very split court? Were they really uh, torn about that? That case came out how? Yeah, it, it came out unanimous. So did a couple of the other cases I cite in my testimony, which also refute these criminal theories. One of the things that you tend to, that you said also, and I think it would be, could be summed up, and I use it sometimes as what's the layman's language here, is facts don't matter. And that's what I heard a lot of in the 45 minutes. Well, the facts said this, or the facts are disputed this, but if this, if that, if this, it rises to an impeachment level. And that was sort of what you're saying, that crimes, I, I think your word was, crimes have meanings. And I think this is the concern that I have. Um, is there a concern that if we just say it up that facts don't matter, that we're also, as you've said, abusing our power as we go forward here in literally looking at what uh, people would actually deem as an impeachable offense? I think so. And part of the problem is that to bring a couple of these articles, you have to contradict the position of President Obama. Uh, President Obama withheld evidence from Congress in Fast and Furious, an investigation, a rather moronic program, that led to the death of a federal agent. President Obama gave a sweeping argument that he was not only not going to give evidence to this body, but that a court had absolutely no role in determining whether he could withhold the evidence. Mr. Mr. I have a question on that. Because you brought up Mr. Obama, you brought up other presidents in this process. Is there not an obligation by the office of the president? We'll just use that term not to be Obama, Trump, Clinton, anyway. Isn't there an obligation by the president to actually assert the constitutional privileges or authorities that have been given uh, or when accused of something or crime or anything else? Yeah, I, I think that President Obama has invoked too broadly. But on the other hand, he has actually released a lot of information um, you know, I've, I've been friends with Bill Barr for a long time. Uh, we disagree on uh, executive privilege. I'm a Madisonian scholar. I tend to favor Congress in disputes. Uh, and he is the inverse. His natural default is Article 2. My natural default is Article 1. But he actually has released more privileged information than any 
Attorney General in my lifetime, including the Mueller report. These transcripts of these calls would be core executive privilege material. There's no question about that. This, and I think that's something that's, again, not pointed out when you're doing a, a back and forth like we're doing. The, the transcript of the call release, the things that have been released to the Mueller, as we go back through this, there has been, you know, uh, work in progress by this administration. I think the interesting point that I want to talk about is two things. Number one, Congress's abuse of its own power, which has not been discussed here, even internally, where we have had committees not willing to let members see uh, transcripts, not being willing to give those up under the guise of, of impeachment or you shouldn't be able to see them, although the rules of the House were never invoked to stop that. What we're seeing here, and I want to hit, hit something else before we move on to something else, is the timing issue that you've talked about here. Again, I, I believe we talked about this with the Mueller report. We talked about this with everything else. This is one of the fastest, you know, you know, we're on a train. I said this earlier. We're on a, a clock. The clock and the calendar are seemingly dominating this. It's irregardless of what anybody on this committee, and especially members not of this committee, to think about what we're actually seeing of fact witnesses and people moving forward. We don't have that yet. So the question becomes, is an election pending when facts are in dispute? And you may have mentioned this. This is one in which the facts are not unanimous. There's not universal, there's not even bipartisan agreement on the facts and what they're uh, what they lead to, especially when there's exculpatory evidence that has been presented, not in the Schiff report, but in other reports. Does that timing bother you from a historical perspective, not only in the past, but moving forward as well? Yeah, fast and narrow is not a good recipe for impeachment. That's the case with Johnson. Narrow was the case with Clinton. They tend not to survive. They tend to collapse in front of the Senate. Impeachments are like buildings. There's a ratio between your foundation and your height. And this is the highest structure you can build under the Constitution. You want to build an impeachment? You have to have a foundation broad enough to support it. This is the narrowest impeachment in history. You could argue with Johnson. Uh, Johnson it might actually be the fastest impeachment. Johnson actually was, the, the, what happened to Johnson was actually the fourth impeachment attempt against Johnson. And actually, the, the record goes back a year before. They laid that trapdoor a year before. So it was not as fast as it made it out, it, it might appear. Let me, and again, let's go back. To, I want to go back to something else. And you talked about bribery. And I'm, uh, uh, Mr. Taylor's going to address a good bit of that. But I want to go back to something that you talked about. Because it really bothers, I think, the, the perception out there of what's going on here in the disputed uh, transcript being that you know the call has been laid out there the president said i wanted nothing for this there's all this exculpatory evidence that was not presented in the last 45 minutes but there is one thing that's interesting is and it's been reported in the mainstream media and it goes back to your issue of does crimes matter or does or what this definition is is that house uh, our majority initially accused the president and they kept saying quid pro quo and we still hear it as we go through but then as reported they used a political focus group to determine whether the phrase polled well and apparently it didn't poll well, so they agreed to change their theory of the case to bribery. Does that not just feed into more of what you're saying about how we're actually, the crime matters and that facts do matter in a case like it, or at least should matter? It does. There's a reason why every past impeachment has established crimes. And it's obvious. It's not that you can't impeach on a non-crime. You, you can. And in fact, non-crimes have been part of past impeachments. It's just that they've never gone up alone or primarily in, as the basis of impeachment. That's the problem here. If you prove a quid pro quo, that you, you might have an impeachable offense. But to go up only on a non-criminal case would be the first time in history. So why is that the case? The reason is that crimes have an established definition and case law. So there's a concrete, independent body of law that assures the public 
that this is not just political, that this is a president who did something they could not do. You can't say the president is above the law if you then say the crimes you accuse him of really don't have to be established. I think that's the problem right now that many members of this House, members of this body, and especially the American public are looking at, that if you say he's above law, but then you don't define it or you define the facts to whatever you want to have, that is the ultimate railroad that everybody in this country should not be afforded. Everyone is afforded due process. Everyone is afforded the process to actually make their case heard. That's the concern that I have in this committee right now. And we've already seen it voted down that we're not going to look at certain fact witnesses. We're not even been promised other hearings in which this committee and in the words and the concerns that echoed almost 20 years ago from the chairman, where he was, did not want to take the advice of another body or entity giving us the Judiciary Committee a report and then acting as a rubber stamp if we didn't do this. Just as a reminder, it was almost two and a half weeks before the discussion of this kind of a hearing back then, before the hearing actually took place. These are the kind of things that, as timing goes, I think the, the, the obvious point here is that timing is becoming more of the issue because, they're con because of the concern, as been stated before, about elections. They're more concerned about trying to fit the facts in to what the president supposedly did, presumably did, and make those hypotheticals stick to the American public. The problem is their timing, the definition of crimes, the definition of the fact of bribery as defined by the Supreme Court is not making their case. It's not fitting what they need to do. The issue that we have to deal with going forward is why the rush? Why do we still not have the information from the uh, Intelligence Committee? Why is the IC Inspector General's report from the IC Committee being withheld, even in a non -class in a classified setting? These are the problems that you have now highlighted and I think that need to be, and this is why the next 45 minutes and the rest of the day is going to be uh, applicable, because both sides matters. And at the end of the day, this is a fast impeachment, the fastest we're seeing, based on disputed facts, on crimes or disturbances that are made up with the facts to fit each part. With that, I'm going to turn it over to my counsel, Mr. Taylor. Professor Turlia, I'd like to turn to the subject of partisanship as the founders feared it and uh, as it exists today. It's a subject Alexander Hamilton was very concerned about when it came to impeachment. He wrote some prescient words in Federalist Paper number 65. Uh, in advocating for the ratification of the Constitution, the Federalist Papers laid out uh, the reasons uh, Madison and principally Hamilton uh, uh, thought the, the impeachment clause was necessary, but he also flagged concerns. He said, in many cases of impeachment, it will connect itself with the pre-existing factions and will enlist all their animosities, partialities, influence, and interest on one side or on the other, and in such cases there will always be the greater danger that the decision will be regulated more by the comparative strength of parties than by the real demonstrations of innocence or guilt. Professor Turley, do you think Hamilton predicted a real danger here of hyperpartisan impeachments? Well, certainly that has proven to be the case. Uh, certainly of the two impeachments that we have seen. Uh, it's also important to note, by the way, that we often think that our times are unique. You know, this provision wasn't just written for times like ours. It was written in times like ours. That is, you know, these are people that were even more severe than the rhetoric today. I mean, you have to keep in mind, Jefferson referred to the administration of the Federalists as the reign of the witches. So this was not uh, a period where people didn't have the strong feelings. And indeed, when people talk about, you know, members of this committee acting like they want to kill each other, back then they were actually trying to kill each other. 
That's what the sedition law was, is you were trying to kill people that disagreed with you. But what's notable is they didn't have a whole slew of impeachments. They knew not to do it. And I think that that's a lesson that actually can be taken from that period, uh, that the framers w created a, a standard that would not be endlessly fluid and flexible. Um, and it, that standard has kept us from impeachments despite periods in which we have really despised each other. And that, I think, is the most distressing thing for most of us today, is there's so much more rage than reason. You can't even talk about these issues without people saying, you must be in favor of the Ukrainians taking over the country, or the Russians moving into the White House. At some point, as a people, we have to have a serious discussion about the grounds to remove a duly elected president. Uh, Professor Turley, in your testimony, you've said that when it comes to impeachment, we don't need happy ideological warriors. We need circumspect legal analysis. Uh, but let's take a quick look at the deeply partisan landscape on which this particularly partisan impeachment is being waged. I mean, the Democratic leaders pushing Trump's impeachment represent some of the most far-left urban coastal areas of the country. The bar graphs here show counties, and the height of the bars indicate total votes cast, and the color of the bars show the margin of victory for the winner in the 2016 presidential election. As you can see, the parts of the country represented by these Democrat impeachment leaders voted overwhelmingly for Hillary Clinton during the last presidential election. Also, uh, during the 2016 presidential election, lawyer campaign contributions tilted 97% for Clinton, 3% for Trump. And the situation is essentially the same at law schools around the country, including those represented on the panel here today. Uh, now, Professor Turley, I'd like to turn now to the partisan process that defines these impeachment proceedings. This is how the Nixon impeachment effort was described in the bipartisan 1974 staff report. We were talking about the initiation of the uh, impeachment inquiry. It says, this action was not partisan. It was supported by the overwhelming majority of both political parties, and it was. Regarding the authorization of the Clinton impeachment inquiry, it was supported by all Republicans and 31 Democrats. Now fast forward to the current impeachment. The House Democrats' Trump impeachment drive was subsequently approved only by Democrats, and indeed it was approved over the opposition of two Democrats and all Republicans. Uh, Professor Turley, how does this trend comport with how the founders understood impeachment should operate? Well, I believe that the founders certainly had aspirations that we would come together as a people, but they didn't have any delusions. It certainly was not something that they achieved in their own lifetime. Uh, although you'd be surprised that some of these framers actually uh, did at the ends of their lives, including Jefferson and Adams, sort of reconcile. Uh, indeed, I think one of the most weighty and significant moments in, in constitutional history is the one that is rarely discussed, that Adams and Jefferson reached out to each other, that they wanted to, they wanted to reconcile before they died. And they met and they did. And um, maybe that is something that we can learn from. But I think that the greater thing I would point to is the seven Republicans in the Johnson impeachment. If I could just read one thing to you, um, and everyone, often talks about one of the senators, but not this one. And that's Lyman Trumbull, who was a fantastic senator. He became a great advocate for civil liberties. You have to understand that most of these senators, when, when it was said,
that um, they jumped into their political graves, it was true. Uh, most of their political careers ended. They knew they would end because of the animosity of the period. Trumbull said the following. He said, once this set the example of impeaching a president for what, when the excitement of the hour shall have subsided, will be regarded as insufficient causes. No future president will be safe who happens to differ from the majority of the House and two-thirds of the Senate. He said, I, I tremble for the future of my country. I cannot be an instrument to produce such a result and at the hazard of the ties, even of friendship and affection, till calmer times shall do justice to my motives, no alternatives are left to me. And he proceeded to give the vote that ended his career. You can't wait for calmer times. The time for you is now. And I would say that what Trumbull said is has even more bearing today because I believe that this is much like the Johnson impeachment. It's manufactured until you build a record. I'm not saying you can't build a record, but you can't do it like this. And you can't impeach a president like this. Now, uh, Professor Turley, there's a recent book on impeachment by Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe and Joshua Matz that discusses what they consider to be a legitimate impeachment process. Uh, the book is pretty anti-Trump. It's called To End a Presidency. And in that book, the authors state the following. When an impeachment is purely partisan or appears that way, it is presumptively illegitimate. When only Republicans or only Democrats view the president's conduct as justifying removal, there's a strong risk that policy disagreements or partisan animus have overtaken the proper measure of congressional impartiality. Another quote is, we can also expect that opposition leaders to the president will be pushed to impeach and will suffer internal blowback if they don't. The key question is whether they will cave to this pressure. One risk of our broken politics is that the House will undertake additional doomed partisan impeachments, a development that would be disastrous for the nation as a whole. Professor Tur Turley, is that advice being followed by House Democrats in this case? Not on this schedule. The one thing, if you look at, I, I laid out the three impeachments. The one thing that comes out of those impeachments in terms of what bipartisan support occurred is that impeachments require a certain period of saturation and maturation. That is, the public has to catch up. I'm not prejudging what your record would show, but if you rush this impeachment, you're going to leave half the country behind. And certainly that's not what the president, what the framers wanted. You have to give the time to build a record. This isn't an impulse buy item. You're trying to remove a duly elected president of the United States. And that takes time, it takes work. But at the end, if you look at Nixon, which was the gold standard in this respect, the public did catch up. They originally did not support impeachment, but they changed their mind. You changed their mind. And so did, by the way, the courts, because you allowed these issues to be heard in the courts. Uh, Professor Turley, the Nixon and Clinton impeachments were debated solidly in the high crimes category, correct? Crimes yes. were at issue. Uh, but on the evidence presented so far, is it your view that there is no credible evidence that any crime was committed by President Trump? Yes, I've gone through all of the crimes mentioned. They do not meet any reasonable interpretation of those crimes, and I'm relying on express statements from the federal courts. I understand that the language and the statutes are often broad. That's not the controlling language. It's the language of the interpretation of federal courts. And I think that all of those decisions stand mightily in the way of these theories. And if you can't make out those crimes, 
then don't call it that crime. If it doesn't matter, then what's the point? Call it treason. Call it endangered species violations, if none of this matters. So that would uh, put the Democrats' move to impeach President Trump in the category of high misdemeanors. And uh, in James Madison's notes of the Constitutional Convention uh, debates, uh, they clearly show that the term high misdemeanor was explicitly referred to as a technical term. And it wasn't just something that any majority of partisan members might happen to think it was at any given time. And often when there's a debate about a technical term, people turn to dictionaries. And the first truly comprehensive English dictionary was Samuel Johnson's A Dictionary of the English Language. It was first published in 1755. Uh, and the founders in many of their libraries had this book and uh, on their desks. And the Supreme Court still cites Johnson's Dictionary to determine the original uh, public understanding of the words used in the Constitution. So here's how the 1785 edition of Johnson's Dictionary defines the relevant terms in high misdemeanor. I, the relevant uh, sub-definition is uh, capital great, opposed to little, as high treason. The definition of misdemeanor is defined as something less than an atrocious crime. And atrocious is defined as wicked in a high degree, enormous, horribly criminal. So if you look at how these words were defined during the time the Constitution was debated and ratified, a misdemeanor is something less than an atrocious crime, and atrocious is wicked in a high degree, and as a result, a high misdemeanor must be something like just less than a crime that's wicked in a high degree. Now, Professor Turley, does that generally comport with your understanding of the phrase high misdemeanors that was understood by the founders with the purpose of narrowing that phrase to prevent the sorts of abuses that you've described? It did. I mean, if you compare this to the extradition clause, the language was, that was used was different for a reason. They did not want to, to establish a type of broad meeting. Uh, it, according to the view of some people as to the meaning of high crimes and misdemeanors, those provisions would be essentially identical. Um, and that's clearly not what they wanted. Uh, Professor Turley, next I'd like to explore how this impeachment is based on no crime and no request for false information, unlike the Nixon and Clinton impeachments. Uh, I'd like to start with some background. The American media for years has been asking questions about former Vice President Biden's son and his paid involvement with a corrupt Ukrainian energy company, Burisma. Here's one example of those media reports from June 20, uh, 2019. It was an ABC News investigation uh, titled Hunter Biden's foreign, foreign Deals. Did Joe Biden's son profit off father's position as Vice President? There's a still clip of it here from a, with a Burisma promotional video. And many have seen the video of Joe Biden talking about getting the Ukrainian prosecutor who was investigating Burisma fired. And a New York Times article uh, says from May 1st, 2019, referring to Joseph R. Biden, one of his most memorable performances came on a trip to Kiev in March 2016 when he threatened to withhold a billion dollars in United States loan guarantees if Ukraine's leaders did not dismiss the country's top prosecutor. Among those who had a stake in the outcome was Hunter Biden. Mr. Biden's younger son, who at the time was on the board of an energy company owned by a Ukrainian oligarch who had been in the sights of the fired prosecutor general. So even if Hunter Biden engaged in no crimes regarding his sitting on the board of Burisma, if an investigation led to the bankruptcy of the corrupt company, Hunter Biden's lucrative position on the Burisma board would have been eliminated along with his $50,000 a month payments. That was his stake in a potential prosecution involving the company. In fact, even Neil Katyal, uh, the former acting uh, Solicitor General under President Obama in his recent book entitled Impeach says the following, is what Hunter Biden did wrong? Absolutely. Hunter Biden had no real experience in the energy sector which made him wholly unqualified to sit on the board of Burisma 
The only logical reason the company could have had for appointing him was his ties to Vice President Biden. This kind of nepotism isn't only wrong, it is a potential danger to our country since it makes it easier for foreign powers to buy influence. No politician from either party should allow a foreign power to conduct this kind of influence peddling with their family members. Also, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman was asked at his hearing, would it ever be U.S. foreign policy in your experience to ask a foreign leader to open a political investigation? And he replied, certainly the president is, is well within his right to do that. So the American media and others were asking questions about Hunter Biden and his involvement in Ukraine. And President Trump, in his call with the Ukrainian president, simply asked the same questions the media was asking. Now, Professor Turley, is it your understanding that the House impeached Nixon for helping cover up his administration's involvement in a crime and that the evidentiary record showed Nixon knew of criminal acts and sought to conceal them, including tape recordings of President Nixon ordering a cover-up of the Watergate break-in shortly after it occurred? It is. And is it also your understanding that the House impeached Clinton for the crime of lying under oath to deny a woman suing him for sexual harassment evidence she was legally entitled to? That's correct. So there were requests for false information in both the Nixon and Clinton scandals uh, by the president's aides or associates or by the president himself, correct? Yes. But there are no words in the four corners of the transcript of President Trump's call that show a request for false information, are there? No, and that's, the, that's one of the reasons why if you want to establish the opposing view, you have to investigate this further. Now, let me walk through the standard of evidence House Democrats insisted upon during the Clinton impeachment. The minority views in the Clinton impeachment report were signed by, among others, current Senate Minority Leader Schumer and current House Judiciary Committee Chairman Nadler. And they say that um, one of the professors who testified, quote, has meticulously documented how in the Nixon inquiry, everyone agreed, the majority, the minority, and the President's counsel, that the standard of proof for the committee and the House was clear and convincing evidence. Professor Turley, would you agree that the evidence compiled to date by House Democrats during these current impeachment proceedings fails to meet the standard of clear and convincing evidence? I do, by considerable measure. Now let me turn uh, again to the book To End a Presidency. In that book, the authors state the following, quote, except in the most extraordinary circumstances, impeaching with a partial or plausibly contested understanding of key facts is a bad idea. Professor Turley, do you think that impeaching in this case would constitute impeaching with a partial or plausibly contested understanding of key facts? I think that that's clear because the, the, this is one of the thinnest records ever to go forward on impeachment. I mean, the Johnson record, once again, we can debate because this, that was the fourth attempt at, at impeachment. But this is certainly the thinnest of a modern record. If you take a look at the size of the record of Clinton and Nixon, they were massive in comparison to this, which was, is almost wafer thin in comparison. And it has left doubts, not just in doubts in the minds of people supporting President Trump, doubts in the minds of people like myself about what actually occurred. There's a difference between requesting investigations and a quid pro quo. You need to stick the landing on the quid pro quo. You need to get the evidence to support it. It might be out there, I don't know. But it's not in this record. I agree with my colleagues. We've all read the record, and I just come to a different conclusion. I don't see proof of a quid pro quo, no matter what my presumptions, assumptions, or bias might be. It, on that point, I'd like to turn now to the current impeachment procedures. Professor Turley, would you agree that a full and fair adversary system in which each side gets to present its own evidence and witnesses is essential to the search for truth? 
It is, and the interesting thing is on the, Eng the English impeachment model that was rejected by the framers, they took the language, but they actually rejected the model of the impeachment uh, from England, particularly in terms of Hastings. But even in England, it was a robust adversarial process. Uh, if, you, and if you want to see adversarial work, take a look at what Edmund Burke did uh, to Warren Hastings. I mean, he was on him like ugly on moose for the entire, uh, the entire trial. Uh, and as you know, in the minority views in the Clinton impeachment report, the House Democrats wrote the following. We believe it is incumbent upon the committee to provide these basic protections. As Representative Barbara Jordan observed during the Watergate inquiry, impeachment not only mandates due process, but due process quadrupled. Uh, the same minority views also uh, support um, the right to cross-examination in a variety of contexts in the Clinton uh, example. Uh, now, Professor Turley, you describe how Monica Lewinsky wasn't allowed to be called as a witness in the Senate impeachment trial. And after her original testimony, she revealed how she had been told to lie about her relationship with President Clinton by his close associates. It's a cautionary tale about the dangers of denying key witnesses. Can you el elaborate on that? Yeah, the only reason I mentioned that is that was in the portion of my testimony dealing with how you structure these impeachments. Um, what happened during the Clinton impeachment, and it came up, uh, during the hearing that uh, we had previously uh, was a question of how much the House had to do uh, in terms of Clinton impeachment because you had this robust uh, record created by the independent counsel and they had a lot of testimony, videotapes, etc. So the House basically incorporated that and the assumption was that those witnesses would be called at the Senate. But there was a failure at the Senate. The rules uh, that were, it, were applied, um, in my view, were not fair. Um, they restricted witnesses to only three. And that's why I brought up the Lewinsky matter. Uh, about a year ago, Monica Lewinsky revealed that she had been told that if she signed that affidavit that we now know is untrue, that, um, that she would not be called as a witness. If you had actually called live witnesses, that type of information would have been part of the record. Thank you. Mr. Chairman, I yield back. The gentleman yields back. I note that this is the moment in which the White House would have had an opportunity to question the witnesses, but they declined their invitation. So we will now proceed uh, to questions under the five-minute rule. I yield myself five minutes for, for the purpose of questioning the witnesses. Professor Feldman, would you respond to Professor Turley's comments about bribery, especially about the relevance of the ele elements of criminal bribery? Yes. Bribery had a clear meaning to the framers, it was when the president, using the power of his office, solicits or receives something of personal value from someone affected by his official powers. And I want to be very clear, the Constitution is law. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So of course, Professor Turley is right, you wouldn't want to impeach someone who didn't violate the law, but the Constitution, the supreme law of the land, specifies bribery as a ground of impeachment as it specifies other high crimes and misdemeanors. Bribery had a clear meaning. If the House believes that the President solicited something of value in the form of investigations or an announcement of investigations, and that he did so corruptly for personal gain, then that would constitute bribery under the meaning of the Constitution. And it would not be lawless. It would be bribery under the law. So the so the Supreme Court case in McDonnell interpreting the federal bribery statute and other decisions interpreting the statutes would not be relevant? 
The Constitution is the supreme law, and the Constitution specifies what bribery means. Federal statutes can't trump the Constitution. They can't defeat what's in the Constitution. Th thank you. Professor Gerhardt, would you respond to Professor Turley's comments about obstruction of justice or obstruction of Congress, please? <clears throat> yes. Uh, on obstruction of justice, one thing I want to emphasize is obstruction of justice is not just about obstruction of a court. It's, it's a obstruction of any lawful proceeding. And so that uh, obstruction isn't limited um, to whatever is happening on the courts. Um, and obviously here, there are judicial proceedings going on, but there's also a really critical congressional proceeding, which brings us to obstruction of Congress. And with the obstruction of Congress, I don't think, um, in fact, I can say, I know there's never been anything like the president's refusal to comply with, with subpoenas from this body. These are lawful subpoenas. These have the force of law to them. These are the things that every other president has complied with and actually acted in alignment with, except for President Nixon in a small but significant set of materials. Professor Turley implied that uh, uh, as long as the president asserts a fanciful, ultimately non-existent privilege like absolute immunity, um, he can't be charged with obstruction of Congress or, uh, because, after all, it hasn't gone through the courts yet. Would you comment on that? Professor Gerhardt. I'm sorry, I missed part of the question. Please, I'm sorry. The professor me. Turley implied that uh, we can't charge the president with obstruction of Congress for refusing all subpoenas uh, as long as he has any fanciful claim until the courts reject those fanciful claims. I, I have to respectfully disagree. No, his refusal to comply with those subpoenas is an independent event. It's apart from the courts. It has, it's a direct assault on the legitimacy of this inquiry, which is crucial to the exercise of this power. Thank you, Professor Carlin. I'll give you a chance to, to respond, if you would like, as well as the same question. I, I wanted to respond to the first question about bribery, if yeah, I could instead, which is, um, although counsel for the minority read Samuel Johnson's definitions of high and crime and misdemeanor, he didn't read the definition of bribery. Um, now, I, didn't ha I have the 1792 version of Johnson's dictionary. I don't have uh, the initial one. And there, he defines bribery as the crime of, give of giving or taking rewards for bad practices. And so if you think it's a bad practice to deny uh, military appropriations to an ally that have been uh, given to him, if you think it's a bad practice uh, not to uh, hold a meeting to buck up the legitimacy of a government that's on the front line, and you do that in return for uh, the reward of getting help with your re-election, that's Samuel Johnson's definition of bribery. Thank you. And Professor Feldman, if uh, Washington were here today, if he were joined by Madison and Hamilton and other framers, what do you believe they would say if presented with the evidence before us about President Trump's conduct? I believe the framers would identify President Trump's conduct as exactly the kind of abuse of office, high crime and misdemeanor that they were worried about. And they would want the House of Representatives to take appropriate action and to impeach. And they would find obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, and abuse of power, or some of them? I believe that if the evidence supported those things in their minds, and if Congress determines that that is what the evidence means, then they would believe strongly that that's what Congress ought to do. Uh, thank you. I'll yield back my time, the balance of my time. I'll now recognize the ranking member of the Judiciary Committee, the gentleman from Georgia, Mr. Collins, for five minutes for questioning the witnesses. This just keeps getting more amazing. I think we just put in the jury pool the founding fathers uh, and said, what would they think? I don't think we have any idea what they would think, in all due respect, um, with this because of the different times, the different things we've talked about, but also to, to 
in some way insinuate on a live mic with a lot of people listening that the founding fathers would have found President Trump guilty is just simply malpractice in this with these facts before us. That is just simply pandering to a camera. That is simply just not right. I mean, this is amazing. We can disagree. What's amazing on this committee is we don't even disagree on the facts. We cannot even find a fact right now with it is not uh, going through the public testimony and also the, even the, the transcripts and all. It is not. Mr. Charlie, are we going to deputize somebody between now and the founders end of the jury pool here? <laughs> well, first of all, only I will speak for James Madison. Um, yeah. No, no, we all will speak for James Madison with about the same level of accuracy. It's a form of necromancy that, that academics do all the time, and that's what we get paid for. Um, but I just want to note a couple of things. First of all, I do find it rather surprising that you would have George Washington in this jury pool. I would strike him for cause. Uh, George Washington was the first guy to raise extreme executive privilege claims. He had a rather robust view of what a president could say. If you were going to make a case to George Washington that you could impeach over a conversation he had with another head of state, I, I expect his hair, his powdered hair, would catch on fire. Um, also, I just want to know one other thing, and um, I, I am impressed with carrying an 18th century copy of Samuel Johnson with you. Um, no, it's, that, just, it's just the online version. <laughs> it's just the online version. Um, you, you, as an academic, I was pretty darn impressed. I, the, um, I just want to note one thing of, which may explain part of our difference. The statutes today on bravery are written broadly, just like they were back then. That was my point. The meaning of those words are subject to interpretation. They're written broadly because they don't want them to be too narrow. That was the case in the 18th century as they are today. But the idea that bad practices could be the definition of bribery, really? I mean, is that, is that what you get from the Constitutional Convention, that bad practices? Is, is, that, why, is that why Mason wanted to put in maladministration? Because bad practices is not broad enough. I, this is where I disagree. Now, the other thing that I just wanted to, to note is, and, it's with my, and I have so much respect for Noah, and I'm going to just disagree on this point. I feel it is a rather circular argument to say, well, the Constitution is law. Upon that, we are in agreement. But the Constitution refers to a crime to say, well, you can't trump the Constitution because it defines the crime. It doesn't define the crime. It references the crime. Now, the crime, the examples were given during the Constitutional Convention, and those do not comport with bad practices. They comport with real bribery. But to say that the Supreme Court's decision on what constitutes bribery is somehow irrelevant is rather odd. What the Constitution contains is a, a reference to a crime, and then we have to decide if that crime has been committed. Well, and I think one of the things that came out just a second ago was also this discussion of, you know, and we had had this discussion earlier about is it the presidential uh, prerogative and also members of, of the president's cabinet to uh, assert privileges and, and rights. And we talked about the uh, fast and furious with President Obama. Remember, Attorney General Holder was held in contempt by this body for withholding and not uh, complying with subpoenas. Um, I mean, you just can't pick and choose history here with what you want to have. But I think also you just made a statement, and it was brought up earlier, talking about bad practice. It is also the law of the land that we are supposed to ensure that countries given aid are not corrupt. And I think this is also the, something that's missing from this discussion as well. If the president has had a long-seated uh, 
distrust of foreign companies, especially Ukraine and others, with a history of corruption. I made this statement earlier. It's in the report from the uh, HIPSI side on our side. 68% of those polled in the Ukraine over the previous year had bribed a public official. Ukraine had corruption issues. It came back from the Obama administration, came through the Trump administration, and our rule is that they have to actually look at the corruption before giving taxpayer dollars. The president was doing that, and now it has been blown up because we've now found in this hearing today facts really don't matter if we're trying to fit it into a law or fit it into a breaking of rule that we want to impeach on. And as I've said, the reason we're doing this is the train is on the track. This is a clock calendar impeachment, not a fact impeachment. I yield back. Gentleman, gentleman yields back. I now recognize Ms. Lofgren for five minutes. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. This, is, this has been mentioned the only the third time in modern history that the committee has assumed the grave responsibility of considering impeachment. And oddly enough, I've been president at all three. Uh, I was a staff of uh, Congressman Don Edwards during the Nixon impeachment, present on the committee during the Clinton impeachment, and here we are today. At its core, I think the impeachment power really is about the preservation of our democratic systems. And the question we must answer is whether the activity of the president threatens our constitution and our democracy. And it's about whether he's above the law and whether he's honoring his oath of office. Now, the House Judiciary Committee staff, and it wasn't me, it was other staff, wrote an excellent report in 1974. And this is what they said. Impeachment of a president is a grave step for the nation. It is to be predicated only upon, upon conduct seriously incompatible with either the constitutional form and principle of our government or the proper performance of constitutional duties of the presidential office. And I'd ask unanimous consent to enter the House Judiciary Committee report on that constitutional grounds into the record. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You know, like uh, President Nixon, the allegations against President Trump involve serious election-related uh, misconduct. Nixon's associates uh, burglarized the DNC headquarters to give him a leg up in his election. Nixon tried to cover up the crime by obstructing federal and congressional investigations. He also abused his powers uh, to target his political rivals, and here, uh, we're confronted with evidence suggesting that President Trump tried to leverage appropriated military assistance to resist uh, Russia by Ukraine to convince a foreign ally to announce an investigation of his political rival. Professor Carlin, I'd like you to, to tell me your view on how President Trump's conduct meeting his request of the foreign ally to announce an investigation of his adversary. How does that compare to what President Nixon did? Uh, not favorably. Because, it, it, as I suggested in my opening testimony, it was a kind of doubling down. Because President Nixon abused uh, domestic law enforcement to go after his uh, political opponents. Uh, and what uh, President Trump uh, has done, based on the evidence that we've seen so far, is he's asked a foreign country uh, to do that, which means it's not, it, it, it's sort of, it's sort of like a, a, a daily double, if you will, right. of problems. Professor Gebhardt, do you have an additional comment on that? I certainly would agree with Professor Carlin. Uh, yes, I, I think the, the difficulty here is we need to remember um, that 
impeachable offenses don't have to be criminal offenses, as you well know. And so what we're talking about is an abuse of power. We're talking about an abuse of power that only the president can commit. And there was a systematic, concerted effort by the president to remove people that would somehow obstruct or block his ability to put that pressure on Ukraine to get an announcement of an investigation. That seems to be what he cared about. Just the mere announcement. And that, that pressure produced, was going to produce the outcome he wanted until the whistleblower uh, put, a, put a light on it. I want to go back to, quickly to something Professor Turley said. As we saw in the Myers case, and I was a member of the committee when we tried to get her testimony, as well as the Fast and Furious case, which also was wrongfully withheld from the Congress, litigation to enforce congressional subpoenas can extend well belong, uh, beyond the terms of the presidency uh, itself. That happened in both of those cases. Professor Feldman, is it, as Professor Turley seemed to suggest, an abuse of our power not to go to the courts before using our sole power of impeachment in your judgment? Certainly not. Under the Constitution, the House is entitled to impeach. That's its power. It doesn't have to ask permission from anybody, and it doesn't have to go through any judicial process involving the judicial branch of government. That is your decision based on your judgment. Thank you. I'd just like to, to note that this is not um, a proceeding that I looked forward to. It's uh, not an occasion for joy. It's one of solemn obligation. I hope and believe that every member of this committee is listening, keeping an open mind, and hoping that we honor our obligations carefully and honestly. And with that, I yield back, Mr. Chairman. The gentlelady yields back. The gentlelady yields back. We are expecting votes on the House floor shortly, so we will recess until immediately after the conclusion of those votes. I ask everyone in the room to please remain seated and quiet while the witnesses exit the room. I want to remind members of the audience that you may not be guaranteed your seat if you leave the hearing room at this time. This time, the committee will stand in recess until immediately after the votes.